0: chapter 5 verses 9 and 10 and they sang a new song you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men from god for, for god from every tribe and language and people and nation you have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our god and they will reign on the earth may god be pleased with the reading of his word please be seated Over the past uh, two weeks, we have looked at the Bible and what the Bible it teaches us about race and race relations. We have seen how that uh, we, have, uh, we are, uh, bear the image of God and should be respected as an image bearer. We have seen how we are all descendants uh, from Adam and Eve, and therefore we are all family, being part of the one human race. And last week we looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan and saw that we are all neighbors and to act like a good neighbor to one another regardless of race, ethnicity, or religion, or even whether we like someone or not. Jesus taught this also in, in Matthew 6, beginning of verse 32. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the... uh, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. And today as I close out the series, I want us to consider the question. So with the abundance of teaching in scripture that we have, why is racism such a problem? And why is it such a problem for so long? Well, the obvious answer is sin. Sin always has a way of twisting and corrupting everything good and beautiful that God has made into something that's bad and ugly. And such is the case with the diversity of race. But beyond that, we should know that, in a particular, uh, in particular, that the slavery issue was too often defended by Christians as biblical and therefore justified. And their central argument was based upon a text in Genesis 9, the so-called curse on Ham. Genesis 9 starts with Noah and his family uh, after the flood. And God tells Noah and his family to be fruitful and multiply And then he makes a covenant with Noah, telling him that he'll never destroy the earth again by a flood. And then, starting in verse 18, we read, The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who scattered over the whole earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant the vineyard. When he drank some some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Now, upon these very few verses, and and somewhat unclear verses, unfortunately in the past, many Christians have defended slavery. Their thinking went along these lines. The name Ham means hot, or perhaps burnt, and therefore it implies he was black. And having sinned against Noah, he was rightly cursed by Noah. The curse fell upon one of his sons, Canaan, who would forever be a slave to Shem and Japheth. Ham went to Egypt and points southward. Now, for a long time, uh, that interpretation was not challenged, and it became the basis of defending the enslavement of the black race. However, such an interpretation has been found to be very erroneous. So let me address these verses a bit before moving on because they're so central to the debate. As many have pointed out, interpretive debates generally revolve around two uh, interrelated questions. One, what was the nature of Ham's offense? Why would Ham, seeing Noah's nakedness, merit a curse? And secondly, what was the rationale for Canaan's punishment? If Ham was the perpetrator, why was Canaan punished? Now, this whole incident, fortunately most of this whole sermon, uh, is kind of sorted uh, as we cover these immoral events. Now, as as to the nature of Ham's offense, we have three main interpretations. All of them wicked, involving sexual perversity. First, it was voyeurism. Ham saw Noah naked. Now, in that culture, it was a serious crime to view another's nakedness. But the penalty, everlasting slavery, doesn't fit the crime. Besides that, Ham is not cursed, but his youngest son, Canaan, is. So this view doesn't really do justice to the evidence. The second view is that what happened was a paternal incest or rape. This view contends that when Noah saw what Ham had done to him, indicates something much more more illicit than just seeing his nakedness. And this, indeed, would be a much greater transgression than just seeing his father naked and deserving a greater punishment. Yet it still does not explain why Ham's son was cursed and not Ham. The third view, which I I believe is correct, is maternal incest. And this view contends that Ham had relations with Noah's wife. Like in the second, the expression, saw him naked, in scripture is often a euphemism for having sex. It's used this way a number of times in the Old Testament. And you might say, Where does his mother come in? Doesn't he mention it? Well, a verse that sheds light on this is Leviticus eighteen eight. And it reads this way The nakedness of thy father's wife shall thou not uncover. It is thy father's nakedness. Also Leviticus 20.11. And the man that lieth with his father's wife hath uncovered his father's nakedness. These verses and others uh, tell us that the expression thy father's nakedness really means "thy, thy mother's nakedness. So Ham in seeing his father's nakedness really means seeing his mother's and having relations with her. Now, this is a a wicked and and vile act by any standard and deserves a heavy punishment. It was more than a a, a sexual uh, 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 transgression, and it had implications um, regarding authority and control, which I really can't get into. But this interpretation also explains why Canaan, Ham's youngest son, was cursed because Canaan was the child of the illicit union. The writer, as often in scripture, condenses time, so it seems like everything's happening in one day. But the cursing took place nine months later at Canaan's birth. None of Ham's older sons were cursed. Cush, Mizraim, and Put. None of them were cursed. And they all went down to Egypt and to Ethiopia. But Canaan didn't. Canaan went to Canaan. All right? The promised land. Uh, it, that it would become the promised land later on. And Canaan would also become the, 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 the father of the Canaanites, a chronic enemy of the Israelites that would eventually be conquered and subdued, and many put in slavery to the Israelites. But there is another sordid account that is almost parallel to this one, which is recorded later in Genesis 20, and it links an important point here. In that account, we find that it's Lot and his two daughters who have fled Sodom and Gomorrah And it reads in uh, Genesis 20, And the firstborn said to the younger daughter, Our father is old, and there is not a man in the earth to come in unto us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve seed, the seed of our father. And their plan succeeds, we know that, and they both give birth. And then it reads, And the firstborn bear a son, and they called his name Moab, the same as the father of the Moabites unto this day. And the younger, she also bare a son, and called his name Benami, the same as the father of the children of Ammon unto this day. Now both of these illicit unions give rise to future enemies of the Israelites and the Moabites and the Ammonites that were always at war with the Israelites just as the illicit union with Ham gave birth to Canaan and the Canaanites who were, again, a chronic enemy of the Israelites. The curse fell upon Canaan and the Canaanites, not an entire race of people. The idea that the curse applied to the black race is far off the mark and it should be thrown on the trash heap of uh, poor interpretation and, uh, uh, um, you know, just discarded entirely. Before proceeding then, I want to mention another son of Ham, Cush. Now at one time, Cush was a great kingdom just south of Egypt. It is often translated in our Bibles, Ethiopia. Cushites were black. Both the Bible and history verifies this fact. One author notes, quote, throughout the entire period, suggested from the composition of the Hebrew Bible, the term Cush would have been understood to refer to the black inhabitants of the civilizations south of Egypt. Jeremiah 13, 23 reads, Can a Cushite, or an Ethiopian, Change his skin or a leopard its spots. Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Now, Cush had a sort of a love-hate relationship with Egypt. Often they mingled and they helped one another, yet at other times they warred against one another. So Egypt knew them very well, and many inhabited Egypt. Now, why am I telling you this? For an important reason. Because in numbers 12:1 we read the following, quote, "Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite." Miriam and Aaron complained against Moses because he married a black woman. And they went on to challenge Moses and God grew angry with them and summoned them to the tent of meeting. And then we read this. The the anger of the Lord burned against them, and he left them. And when the cloud lifted from uh, above the tent, Miriam's skin was leprous. It became white as snow. Now, how ironic was that? That Miriam and Aaron complained because of the black woman, and yet God punished Miriam with her skin turning snow white. there is not one word in scripture that God disapproved of Moses' interracial marriage to the Cushite woman. The only prohibitions against marriage is in marrying a pagan. Again and again, God warned the Israelites not to intermarry with the surrounding pagan cultures and nations, not because of race, but because of idolatry. One example in Deuteronomy 7, beginning verse 3, where the Lord says he will drive out the seven nations before them. Then God says, do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. The prohibition on marrying those of other nations is not race or ethnicity, it's belief. And we know this prohibition carries over even into the New Testament. We're very familiar with 2 Corinthians 6.14, where Paul writes, do not be uh, yoked together with unbelievers for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common. Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? And again, it has nothing to do with race but beliefs that are the deciding factor. As J. Daniel Hayes, uh, Dean and Professor of Biblical Studies, writes, what theological conclusions should we draw from this text? I would suggest that interracial marriage is strongly affirmed in Scripture. Marrying unbelievers, on the other hand, is strongly prohibited. The criteria for approving or disapproving of our children's selected spouses should be based on their faith in Christ and not at all on the color of their skin. White Christians who say they are not prejudiced but who vehemently oppose interracial marriages are not being honest. They are still prejudiced, and are out of line with God's revealed will. We have seen how this so-called curse of Ham did not sentence a race to slavery. It was specific to Canaan for a specific reason for a specific time period. We also know that Moses married a black woman and was blessed by God. And one more point I'd like to make is the fact that the Apparently, the early church was open to all believers, blacks included. I note this because in doing the research, so sadly, in our country's past, white churches often would bar black believers from coming into the church. But if you look at Acts 13.1, we find the early church had no such barriers. The verse reads this way. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean who had been brought up in the, with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Niger, or actually it's, N, it's pronounced N-E-E, like Niga. So I'm not using the N word, all right? Uh, This is the way it is pronounced. We often say niger, kind of to avoid that. But technically, it's N-E-E. One writer points out the early uses of the word nega and later negro were not racist, but were more descriptive of skin color. It means black. When slaves were brought to the Americas, the descriptive terms were later turned into racial slurs meant to degrade slaves and their descendants. But here in Acts, we have one example of a godly leader in the church. He's either a teacher or a prophet, it doesn't say, all right? And, uh, and he's part of that group that the Lord spoke to to set apart Paul and Barnabas. So I think again and again as we come to scriptures and we see that there is, there is no superior race and it condemns any idea of racial superiority. And within these three sermons, I've attempted to set out the, kind of the building blocks of proper understanding of race-to-race relations. Every individual has dignity as the bearer of God's image. Every individual is in the same family as descendants of Adam and Eve. There is but one race. Every individual is called to be a good neighbor and to show compassion. And reading the scriptures more closely and interpreting them more accurately allows us to see that race was neither an impediment to the community or marriage or serving in the church. And our church operates on those foundational principles. Yet when we look at society, we see a different picture Division and injustice and hatred and violence and riots and death have destroyed the foundations. We ask ourselves, what can we do? What should I do? There's a couple of things I think we should all do. First, I think it's very important to keep our perspective. I think it's important to point out that America's goodness is not completely overshadowed by her imperfections. While systemic racism is still a problem, and by that I mean it continues to exist in varying degrees in every sphere of our society, there is no longer systematic racism. Systematic racism was actually having laws on the books that enforced segregation, the so-called Jim Crow laws. And those laws, which existed for about 100 years from the, uh, after the Civil War, until 1968, were meant to, to marginalize African Americans by denying them the right to vote and to hold jobs and get an education and other opportunities. Those who attempted to defy those Jim Crow laws were often arrested or fined or jailed or or even uh, even killed. But thankfully, those days are gone. And I think we do a disservice to our country by not acknowledging the freedoms, the advancements, and the opportunities that everyone has, including minorities. And as an example, I, I look out at our own congregation. And I see people of color and different ethnicities And I see those people who are doctors and their nurses, their lawyers and their engineers, their professors and their teachers, their pastors and church leaders. You capitalized on those opportunities and you have succeeded, as many have throughout our country in all sorts of fields of endeavor, in corporations and in science and certainly in politics. So let's keep perspective first and foremost. So let's be fair to our country and maintain that perspective. Yes, we, obviously we still need work, but we've come a very long way. Secondly, let's pray. At times like this, we need to pray. We need to pray for our nation, that those who can affect change do in fact bring about the needed changes. We need to pray that we would not, we would not be blind to the, the smallest amount of racism that may be hiding in our hearts. We need to be praying that we are not blind to any injustice that is going on about us and for, fail to show compassion simply because someone looks different. We need to pray for healing for all peoples who have been negatively affected by racism or hatred. And that goes both ways. We need to pray for God's mercy upon our nation that he would, we, he would turn our, the hearts of our nation back to him and to his precepts. Blessed is a nation whose God is the Lord. And when we follow his precepts, our nation is blessed and our people prosper. But when we drift away and ignore his precepts, upheaval follows and the people suffer. Thirdly, it needs a dialogue. This may come as a big surprise to you, but I've never been black. Never, not once, not one day in my life. You people of color, you've never been white. And I don't think there's anybody here who has been a police officer. But why do we armchair quarterback? Why do we speak for others when we don't know from them what their experience is? We need to talk to one another openly, honestly, but with respect, seeking to understand one another better. What's your story? in Christianity today an article is written by a young black woman Zakia Mims she says quote soliciting receiving and giving feedback can be hard but feedback is an irreplaceable component of true reconciliation work ready yourself with humility to remember that perfection exists in only one being the trinity and in one city new jerusalem every other person and every other nation, including you and yours, should be expected to reflect glorious aspects of God and life-stealing aspects of the devil. It's so true. Only God has the whole picture, folks. We need to keep open lines of communication between one another and do the hard but necessary work of listening and considering the other side without getting all defensive and angry. Proverbs 18:17 reads, the first speech in a court case is always convincing until the cross-examination starts. You know, we've all heard the word, your mother probably told you this, there's always two sides to every argument. And we need to hear and consider both sides. And then we should take action. Dialogue is good and necessary, but it should not stop there. To truly love our neighbor is to take action on their behalf. Good Samaritan did not go over to the victim and just speak good and kind words to him. Rather, he got involved, even at the at his own expense, to bring healing. Now, there are many ways to get involved in combating racism and the, the interconnected problems there are also a lot of ways we should not get involved any group or organization that participates in or promotes violence I believe is to be avoided and condemned riots and mayhem are counterproductive and goes against scripture Paul reminds us in Romans 13:10, love does no harm to a neighbor So whether left-wing or right-wing, such groups should be avoided. And also, be discerning in which groups you do support. Read what they stand for, not just the headlines. And folks, let me say this too. We need the police. True, some changes definitely need to be made to eliminate the small percentage of, of bad cops and bad tactics, but we need the police. In matter of fact, you talk to the people in the highest crime areas and the poorest sections, and they'll tell you, we need the police. In fact, it's biblical. The Bible speaks of our need for law enforcement. Romans 13, 3, Paul states, for rulers hold no terror for those who do right, But for those who do wrong, do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended for the one in authority is God's servant for the good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. When there is no more crime, when there is no more criminals, we will no longer need police. In a very small way, this is what popped into my my head. Years ago, back in the 1970s, we were up at Syosset Bible Baptist Church, and they decided to, uh, a group of guys decided to organize a church softball league. So we got a big organization meeting. We got all the teams, different churches. We all said yes, yes. And we decided that since we're all Christians playing, we won't need an umpire. Because we're Christians, and we all tell the truth, and we live, sing kumbaya one another, you know. And then we started playing. You know, the catcher would would call balls and strikes. The pitcher was supposed to say who's out on first base. And guess how that worked out? Yeah. It didn't, right? And it just, more and more arguments and arguments. It was more arguing than playing the game, all right? It's not because we intentionally lie, but you're biased to your team. And that, it's a close play. I'm always going to say, I'm safe. My team's safe. Right? And so, you know, after a few games, we decided we need to hire an umpire. All right? And from then on, we had umpires because we are sinful people. All right? Basically, that's what it comes down to. And folks, in our society, we need, we need the police. Uh, we need law and order and law enforcement. So in closing... As we consider what the scriptures say about race and how we are to relate one to another, let's remember, first and foremost, that Christ came to save us and to restore the vertical relationship with God, first and foremost. Our salvation depends upon that relationship. But Christ also came to, to tear down walls and build bridges and foster genuine community and loving relationships horizontally between us. Remember, it's both love God and love your neighbor. These are the two great commandments, Jesus said. And this is God's ultimate goal and purpose, as we read in Revelations 5, 9 to 10 at the beginning, of that multi-ethnic group. And they sang a new song, saying... You are worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for people, for uh, for God, persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God and they will reign on earth. And since we will For all eternity stand shoulder to shoulder with all this vast, different, diverse people singing the praises of our God and His Christ, our blessed Lord. Might as well start now and get the practice in. We are brought together by that same faith, by that one spirit, to worship the one true living God who has created us. And it's called us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, how we rejoice in you, Lord. And we, we, we are humbled, Lord. And we confess our shortcomings. And Lord, show them to us. Lord, if we indeed harbor anything in our hearts against one another just because of race or, or, or ethnicity, Lord, bring it out that we may confess it and cast it aside. Help us to learn to love our neighbor. Help us, Heavenly Father, not to be influenced by the world and society and all that goes on there, but help us indeed sing a new song that joins us together, shoulder to shoulder, praising you. And, Lord, we look forward to that great day when we will be there singing together. We thank you for your word, Lord. Apply it to our hearts and our lives, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know what to do with that, but uh, (laughs) thank you very much. Um, Let me uh, move on to the announcements. Uh, Team World...